I'll have to say, Alan, you must have stayed up late at night or last night. That was a vastly improved introduction. <laughs> more, more, more befitting a great person like me. That's great, yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll tell you what, let's, uh, let's start this message out a little bit different. Uh, Kind of a somewhat a continuation. I was thinking as Scott was uh, uh, speaking last hour. Uh, I believe I'll just uh, somewhat not real, not add to his message. You don't add to a message like that, but cont- start my message out with a similar uh, thought. Uh, let me tell you a little story. I'll take about five minutes. I think you'll like the story. It fits in with the way he ended his message. Um, Many years ago, as you can tell from looking at me, that uh, could, could go back a ways. Uh, when I uh, finished uh, school at a school I won't mention, it's uh, that direction over in South Carolina, Greenville, so that'll tell you where, I, where it was. Uh, at any rate, uh, I, I was one of these dumb kids. I went to school. I was going to come out and pastor a church and live one of these nice lives, nice Southern Baptist preacher, all of that, you know. Retire, get a cattle ranch, uh, the whole bit. But I didn't know any better in those days than to go around trying to find a church and things of that nature. I, uh, I was over in, oh, we, we lived over in Middle Tennessee at the time. After I finished school, we moved back to Middle Tennessee, uh, west of Nashville, uh, near Waverly, if you know where that is, uh, on the near Lake uh, Kentucky Lake, and I mention that because it's where this church was that I want to reference, and uh, out uh, near Loretta Lynn's ranch, that would be where she might have been present uh, when I was there speaking, I don't know, very close to her ranch. And uh, I had a Baptist pastor uh, that took an interest in me, trying to help me uh, find a church to pastor, you know, I didn't have enough sense to pastor a church. I, it's a good thing I didn't. I would have wrecked it. But uh, at any rate, uh, there was a pulpit committee came to his church one time to hear him speak, and they wanted him to go out there to speak for them in view of a call. He said, well, no, no, I, but I do have a young man here pointed to me. And I said, uh, this man uh, might be the man you're looking for. And so they invited me out in all their graciousness, to speak to them. Well, this church had been pastored by uh, what I call an evangelist, I suppose. All he did every Sunday was try to get the people out there that were already saved, saved. You know, this salvation message. That's all they had ever, ever heard. Well, I went out, and uh, I did have enough sense in those days to not to get up and deliver that type of message to a group of saved people. And uh, I got up and delivered a, just a Bible teaching message. It probably wasn't that much, but uh, it was a Bible teaching type message. And I got to looking at the people while I was uh, delivering this message. And uh, they were a bunch of like a frog sleep, sleeping on a log, that type thing. But uh, right at the end of the message, I took about a minute to... Uh, in uh, with the thought that there might be an unsaved person there to explain the salvation by grace message very simply. And, boy, they perked up, amen, amen, you know, I mean, that's what they wanted to hear, the whole 
time I'd been speaking. They wondered why I hadn't been speaking along those lines. Well, I went, to, went on back home, figuring I wouldn't hear from them again, and I didn't for about three or four weeks, and one of them called me, the pulpit committee, a member of the pulpit committee. Brother Chitwood, we, we don't understand you, really. Uh, would you come back out here and speak to us on Sunday morning and don't plan anything for Sunday night? We want to ask you some questions. Well, I didn't have any more sense in those days to do something like that. That is the questions, because I knew what they were going to ask. But uh, I went out, another Bible teaching lesson Sunday morning. Same thing, no interest, a minute on salvation by grace. Man, that's great. What? Preach on, brother. Well, I went back out Sunday night, and um, they didn't, they, I don't even remember if they sang a song. They put me right in the pulpit to answer the questions. Well, the first question was 90 something year old deacon sitting right down there. Well, I say 90, 85, I believe. He was, he was on up there. Uh, when I asked for questions, first question, what do you think of our music program? Well, they sang this uh, Stamps Baxter, I'll Fly Away music. I didn't really care that much for it. If they wanted to sing it, I didn't care. And I told them that. I said, sing what you want to. I'm, I'm not here to tell you what to sing or not to sing. I said, I'm here to teach you the word. Well, I knew what they were about to say then. And somebody piped up and said, yeah, and that's what we want to talk to you about. What are you trying to do? Well, I then explained it to them, and I explained it to them along these lines. This was during the Vietnam War. I said, you know uh, what, uh, let me tell you about the average Baptist church and how a church should be. I said, Let's, uh, the average Baptist church would be exactly like the U.S. Army would be if they took and recruited a man, sent him off to basic training, kept on trying to give him recruiting lectures, and he would say, well, I've already been recruited. That's all right. You need to hear about it again. So that's all he ever hears. Then they send him to advanced training, keeps on hearing recruiting lectures, and he never hears anything but recruiting lectures, and they send him out on the front lines in Vietnam. Now, if you remember Vietnam, the enemy was Charlie. The, uh, our side was Joe, Joe and Charlie. So I'm, I say that because that's what I used, and they all understood that. I said, here, this man would get out on the front lines, and they'd hand him a rifle, and he would say, what's that? Well, that's a rifle. Well, how do I use it? Well, just use it. And then here, they, they stick him out there, and uh, Charlie over there, that's the enemy. Hey, Joe. Yeah, I'm Joe. Hey. <laughs> Boom. Joe's dead. Uh, those people got I said, the U.S. Army has more sense than the average Baptist church. And they do. They take a man, they train him. They send him off to advanced training. They don't send him out on the front lines untrained. What are we doing here in the church? Uh, you can know that those people called me as their pastor. They wouldn't, they, they wouldn't even talk to me on the way out. <laughs> and they didn't call me again to come back to preach again. I mean... Uh, what do we have here? We've got a mess. All right. I knew you'd like that. But that's, uh, that's the way we are out there. We've gone from Ephesus to Laodicea. The leaven has completely leavened the lump. And we're only waiting for one thing, to hear that trump up. I... Uh, 
Let me say one other thing. Be turning to uh, Genesis 2. One other thing. Um, when I went to school over here in Chattanooga, started in 58, finished in 62, I had a Bible teacher the first semester, Mark Cameron. Now that name might ring a bell with you. He was a very good Bible teacher. He and Brother Wilson shared uh, the Bible Institute on Monday night. He spoke, uh, Mark Cameron spoke downstairs and Brother Wilson upstairs on a Monday night. And uh, Mark Cameron, he only taught one class one time uh, on this particular subject. He later told me this. I didn't know it at the time. And it was a preacher boys class, and I was in that class, and there were only about uh, ten of us in there. So he could uh, individually uh, deal with us. And I can remember one thing that stuck with me that Mark Cameron had to say in that class. And he said that, gentlemen, I believe that you are the generation of preachers that's going to go out and tell the church to get ready because the church is going up. And that's the way Mark Cameron looked at it. Genesis chapter 2. Now we're going to cover a rather large block this hour. Chapters 2, 3, and 4. Of course, we're not going to cover all that would be in these chapters, uh, just parts of these chapters. And uh, where to begin reading, uh, let's just not read right now. Let me just talk to you about uh, what would be in uh, chapter 2. Two. We uh, end uh, chapter. We end, we really end chapter one with verse three of chapter two. That's where the chapter break should be. Then uh, we start in in verse four, and we uh, begin uh, an introduction to what would be commentary uh, Terry on what had previously been uh, stated in chapter one. For example, in uh, chapter one, verses twenty. Uh, uh, 5, 7, 8, right in there, 26 and 8, I believe is correct. We have the creation of man. Now notice in verse uh, 7 of chapter 2. Now it explains a little bit more about how God created man. And the Lord God formed a man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils a breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now that word dust... Uh, he didn't necessarily form man of the dust per se. That word could be understood as a lump of clay. That's the way Martin Luther uh, sought to uh, present it in a commentary that he turned out. Uh, that could be, it could have been dust of the ground. The word has a little bit of larger uh, meaning, that is the Hebrew word, than just simply dust. So if you want to think of it as a uh, God taking a lump of clay and then molding man. But the thing is, God didn't create man alive. He created man, a non-living entity, then. Here's the first mention principle. He breathed into man the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Now, that would reflect back on Genesis 1, 2, where the Spirit of God, a beginning restoration, moves across the waters, or spirit and breath in either the Hebrew or <coughs> the Greek text are one and the same word. It's the spirit that God used to breathe his word. The, the word is 
The Greek word is theos and pneuma. Pneuma is spirit. Theos is God. It's thea, thea, theonoustos. That's, uh, that's the uh, correct pronunciation of the combination of those two words as it's used, where it's translated all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, they, uh, the uh, KJV translators, of course, there's nothing wrong with that translation in the way of their thinking. Inspire, inspiration, inspire and expire. That's more uh, Latin ideology uh, in the translation. But uh, I prefer, uh, you might say, all scripture is God breathed. It is God using his breath to breathe this word. And any time you find life imparted from God, it would be through breath. Now, insofar as man is concerned, there, there is no uh, uh, reference to God breathing into animals, though animals have breath. But uh, God breathing into relative to life is restricted to man insofar as the, uh, the uh, uh, creation, man, animals, so forth would be concerned. Or perhaps I should uh, uh, change what I just said and say two creations because I don't want to mix man and animal in relation to creation. But within God breathing into man the breath of life in Genesis 2-7, explaining what was in the previous chapter where God created man, we evidently have spirit, since it was a spirit breathing in this life, man also has a spirit in connection with his being, making him a triune being, body, soul, spirit. Animals have bodies and souls, but there's not spirit. Now, I know in Ecclesiastes it talks about spirit in relation to man, but bear something in mind. Animals have breath, and the same word, spirit, breath, or they're, the, they're drawn from the same uh, either Hebrew or Greek word, both testaments. Now, there's a, a bit of information relative to man's creation. Now, we continue on through the chapter, and we pick up with things, uh, more commentary on chapter 1. For example, in verse 9, out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight. Uh, the way it's set up here, it almost uh, leaves you with the thought that God did this after he created man. Well, that's not the way it's set up. Bear, uh, remember, the Bible will go over something, then it'll t step back and go over something else again and again. This is all commentary on what God did during the six days. And uh, relative to uh, growing what uh, things, uh, plants, uh, vegetation out of the ground, it has to do with uh, what occurred during uh, really the first uh, three days of the restoration. Notice verse, skip on down to verse 19. Notice how it's worded. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field. Well, he formed these before he created man. These were formed on the sixth day. On the fifth day, you had marine life and uh, birds formed. On backing up to the fourth day, you had the lights placed in the heavens. Uh, uh, let me uh, explain something about light uh, before we leave the fourth day. I, I'm just backing up in the days. But the fourth day, uh, 
Well, you had light on the first day. How can you have light apart from the sun? Well, light is not necessarily an intrinsic part of the sun. Light can exist apart from the sun. It seems that on the fourth day, although God created light, placed light before the fourth day, on the first day, that on the fourth day, then this light became associated with the sun. Now, I didn't just think that up. I had to research that and so forth. Lupo, for example, has it in his common commentary, and it's found other places if you want to look into it. But uh, there's, no, uh, there's no discrepancy. People uh, sometimes try to find a discrepancy between uh, God uh, bringing about light on the first day, but then uh, you don't find the light bearers uh, bearing light until the fourth day. You try to, try to look at the sun without uh, something colored. Uh, it's pretty bright. And not all of that, apparently, is the uh, light, uh, the fires of the sun itself. And, of course, the moon bringing that light in from the sun. By the way, if you want to see something, uh, well, you have to go where I live to see it. Let me, let me just digress one second while we're talking about lights in the heavens, and I'll get back to the next day, then we'll continue in this chapter and get on beyond that. Uh, I live in central Arizona now, and you can see, um, if any of you have been out west, you can see forever in uh, that part of the country. The atmosphere is very clear. It's dry. You don't have the humidity uh, saturating the atmosphere to begin cutting out your visibility. And my wife and I have been uh, somewhat tracking the uh, space station at uh, several times when it would come over our area right before, uh, shortly before daybreak. And you can go out and you can see that light moving across the heavens at about 18,000 miles per hour. Now, what's interesting about it, uh, a few mornings ago, uh, about, an, about 30 minutes before uh, daybreak, the sun hitting the, sp uh, the space station, as it came, came uh, across uh, the Aleutians and then down right over uh, Portland, uh, Oregon, down toward our area, it was traveling out of the northwest uh, toward the southeast. That is, it uh, always travels in the same direction, but the rotation of the earth makes it appear that it's traveling different directions. But anyway, I was able to pick that up before it ever left the Pacific Ocean and moved across Portland, and I was able to watch it all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. Now, in a way, that's amazing what God has allowed man to do. But in another sense of the word, that is nothing. I got to looking at the moon after uh, I watched that. Man, we don't think anything about the moon. We're on really an, orb an orbiting space station, the Earth. It's just orbiting around the sun. It takes uh, one year to get around the sun. So this is nothing but what God has allowed man to do. But God is about to step in and put a stop to all of it because man's gotten a little out of hand with some of the things that God's allowed him to do. But I just thought that might interest you uh, if you uh, ever have a chance to see that station uh, come across, well, I mean, watch it. It's, uh, I, I didn't realize you could see it that far. You can see it uh, all the way across that part of the United States from one ocean to the other. But let's get on with the uh, lesson. <clears throat> now, you move, uh, you move on down, and you find quite a bit of commentary on uh, how God... Uh, 
created uh, not only the man, but the woman. See, the woman was created in the man. They were created really at the same time, but then God took the woman out of the man. He took, he put Adam to sleep. He opened his side. He took a rib out of that side. Then he formed and fashioned the woman. Now, I can remember uh, Brother Wilson commenting on this. I, there's no way I could uh, duplicate what he had to say. But uh, he kind of used uh, the thought ideology that when, uh, uh, to get a point across, that after God had created uh, Eve and brought Eve to Adam, Adam seeing Eve, wow. You know, that's the way Brother Wilson presented this years ago, but I can't duplicate that. But I just thought that little, little insight to the man might interest you. He, uh, he had a real sense of humor, too. He tried to, I mean, he's trying to work a little levity into uh, his mannerism there to catch the people's attention on what Eve may have looked like. She might have been a real knockout. I mean, he, Adam had never seen a woman, especially taken out of him. He had been just looking at animals. First woman, you know. Women are interesting. Should I talk about women a little while? I'm an authority on women. <laughs> I get in real trouble if I try to talk about women. They all wait outside wanting a piece of me, fight to get the first piece. All right. Now, we move into the third chapter, we find trouble. We find the woman being tempted by... Satan using the serpent. Yea, hath God said. Well, God's told us this. He's told us that. She, she seems to uh, misrepresent uh, what God did say. God had told Adam, uh, well, let's, let's back up a little bit. There were several trees in the garden. There was a tree in the midst of the garden. There was a tree of life. There was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and other trees in the garden. And God had given Adam three commands. He had told Adam to eat of every tree of the garden. That would include the tree of life. And he had uh, told Adam to cleave unto his wife. And then there... Well, really, uh, you couldn't say uh, Adam was to cleave unto his wife. I'm not sure you could call that a command of the Lord. But the man was to cleave unto his wife. Then he was commanded not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You could eat of the tree of life, any trees of the other trees, but not of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he was to cleave unto his wife. Now, with that in mind, let's move on into chapter 3 and see the position that Adam found himself in after Eve was beguiled by the serpent and led to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they were not supposed to eat of. Uh, notice the way it's worded in chapter 3, verse, let me find the verse right quick. Verse 2, And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, 
neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, there's no record that God said anything about touching it. It's interesting what people do with something like this. I had an interchange of email with a lady in the north, and uh, she was uh, very adamant about that God probably told Adam this, and that's the reason Eve said this. But here's the thing. We don't have any record of such a thing. We have to go by the information which we have, and I never could get that across to the lady. So don't try to don't try to say, well, maybe this, maybe that. If it's not written here, we'll let it go. We have no record that God told Eve that, so let's let it go. At any rate, the serpent beguiled the lady, and she took the fruit to her husband. He took one look at what had happened. What should he have done? Should he have rejected her advances in the sense of eating of the fruit? Or did he do the right thing in eating of the fruit? Now bear something in mind. These uh, three, this threefold command that I had just gone over, he was told not to eat of this tree, but also to cleave unto his wife placed Adam in a peculiar position. He had to disobey God either way he went. But that's not really the uh, part that I want to press home. Adam, Adam lived in a body, a sinless body. He evidently had reasoning capabilities that you and I know nothing about. So we can't uh, comment on that. He reasoned it all out, evidently reasoned it all out, just like that. I will have to eat of that fruit. I have no choice. Now, you move that over into the antitype, and it's very easy to see. You see, let me say something more about the type, then we'll move into the antitype, and it'll all become quite clear. Why Adam did what he did. You see, we read in the New Testament that Adam was not deceived. The woman being deceived was in the transgression. Adam did what he did with full knowledge of what he was doing willingly, openly. Now, I have a commentary that talks about what Adam did that was uh, deliberate, wicked, and inexcusable. Those are the three words a man uses commenting on this. Deliberate, wicked, and inexcusable. The man believes that Adam should not have eaten of the fruit. But let's take the uh, side of it presented in Scripture. Let's forget about the commentaries for a minute. And um, commentaries are good to have. You need a light moment here and there. But uh, here's the thing. Sometimes, now, aside from the statement I just made, that's a little uh, levious. Uh, is there such a word as levious levity? I don't know. It doesn't matter. But aside from that, Sometimes you can pick up good ideas from the commentators. I'm not say, I don't say throw them out, but I will tell you this, you pick up better ideas right here. Just read this book. Read it, read it, read it, digest it, study it. Now, here's Adam. Eve has partaken of the fruit. You have a, a part of his very being in a position 
where she can no longer ascend the throne with him. The man and the woman are to ascend the throne together. The man cannot rule alone. And that will tell you why Christ has to have a bride. It's all set forth in these opening chapters in Genesis. The Spirit is in the world today procuring, searching out, obtaining a bride for the Son. When that bride has been procured, it takes 2,000 years. He's taking 2,000 years, rather, to procure the bride. Once the bride has been singled out, procured, the Spirit of God is going to remove that bride along with all other Christians, and that bride will be revealed at the judgment seat when the division, the separation is made. And that bride will be presented to the Son. The Son can then reign. And here's Adam, the first man, the first Adam, Christ, the second man, the last Adam. Now, the first man, the first Adam, the fall really occurred when he partook of the fruit. He's the federal head. But Eve was in a position where she could not ascend the throne with him. Therefore, he had to partake of the same sin, place himself in that same position in order that somewhere down the way, both might be redeemed and be able to partake of the tree of life together. Can you see the antitype? Let me tell you something about the tree of life first. What is the tree of life? The tree of life has to do with providing the wisdom and knowledge to rule and to reign. I'm not going to try to prove that uh, right now. It's mentioned, uh, the tree of life is only mentioned in three books. It's mentioned at the beginning of Genesis. It's mentioned four times in uh, Proverbs. Uh, it's mentioned uh, two places in the book of Revelation. In one of the overcomer's promises in chapters 2 and 3, and it's mentioned over in uh, chapter 22 when we move out into the eternal ages. But when you start studying, comparing all of those, you'll see that the tree of life has had to do and will have to do with providing the wisdom and knowledge to rule and to reign. I have an uh, article on that in one of my books. Uh, that is a chapter, if that's something that interests you. I don't remember which book it, it's in now. I believe it's in a couple of them. Uh, let me see. That's all right. I can't remember. I'm up here uh, t thinking about something else. I was trying to think what book is that in, but let it go. Just uh, uh, check some of them, or I might find out later if that's something that interests you. At any rate, <clears throat> as Adam partook of sin, as he partook of that fruit, placed himself on that same level as Eve, what did Christ do out in the antitype? He became sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Here's his bride in a fallen state. Now you have to enlarge on that relative to the overall view of salvation, relative, uh, say, to all Christians today. But here's the bride in a fallen state. He becomes sin for us. Adam partook of that fruit. Do you see the type antitype? If you uh, 
drop back and say that what Adam did was wicked and inexcusable, you're going to have to say exactly the same thing about what Christ did by going to Calvary. In the Adotype, it was wicked and it was inexcusable. Just think about that for a while. Now let's move on down in the third chapter to a point beyond the fall. And we see God walking uh, in the uh, garden, Adam uh, hearing uh, God moving uh, through the garden. There's uh, somewhat of an interesting thought here, and let me dwell on it a few moments. Uh, Let me find the exact verse. Uh, First, let's pick up with verse 7. Once, a, once Adam had eaten of that uh, fruit and uh, he had fallen as a federal head, in verse 7, and the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. Actually, there's a couple of thoughts I want to pick up on here. Let's pick up on the thought of naked first and sewing aprons together. There's uh, two different Hebrew words used for naked in chapters 2 and uh, 3. In chapter 2, at the end of the chapter, you'll find that the man and the woman were naked and were not ashamed. Now, that word ashamed is a little bit might mislead you because we, were, we uh, use ashamed uh, in a little bit different sense and in, uh, it's really meant to uh, bring out there. It's not shame uh, in the sense of nakedness. They, they were naked and they, it's just, uh, there was no problem with them being in that respect. Now, two different words for naked. The word that's used for naked in chapter 2 before the fall doesn't really mean total, it doesn't necessarily mean total nakedness. It would be uh, like a man with underwear but not outerwear. See, we have, uh, well, some people don't wear underwear anymore. They just uh, don't wear, I mean, I'm just, I'm I'm speaking from uh, really fact. A lot of people have gotten away from it. I don't hardly blame them. But uh, think think of the old days when people did wear underwear and outerwear and uh, they had really two garments on uh, so the Hebrew word that would be used in chapter 2 has to do with the old days, the way we're thinking about it, when, and think of just underwear, no outerwear. Now the word could mean that. It could mean a little more than that in the sense of nakedness. But the word in chapter 3, you, you don't have anything on. No underwear, no outerwear, it's just total nakedness. And Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together and tried to replace something. What did they try to replace? Well, man created in the image and likeness of God. God is covered with light in Psalm, what, 104, I believe. They were clothed with inner wear but didn't have the outer wear. Well, what is the inner wear and what would have been the outer wear? And out ahead, what's the inner wear and what will be the outer wear? All right, that's a simple, I'm glad you asked me. That's a simple question to answer. Adam and Eve being created in the image and likeness of God and a Hebrew word being used of that nature and they're evidently recognizing they had lost something and tried to replace it with fig leaves. 
they could only have been clothed in the glory of God, the inner wear. Well, what's the outer wear? Well, why were Adam and Eve created? Why was Eve taken out of Adam following her being created in Adam and God forming the woman? Genesis uh, 1, 26 and 28 will tell you. Let's just read it. Turn back to Genesis 1, 26 and 28. Why was man created? You all know the answer, but I want you, I want you to see it in black and white because... Uh, you need to see this to really answer the question that I'm asking. In 26, 126, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them, both the man and the woman, have dominion. The, the word uh, dominion in the Hebrew text is radha. It's the same word used in uh, Psalm 110, where the father has told his son to sit on his right hand until he makes his enemies his footstool. Then the next verse says, rule, rather, in the midst of your enemies. And that rulership has to do with the coming day of the son's power when he will rule the earth after as a king priest in verse 4 of Psalm 110 after the order of Melchizedek. Now, that same word used in verse 28. We'll not read it there, but it's used twice. And man was created to rule the earth in the stead of Satan and his angels who uh, had uh, disqualified themselves way back prior to the creation of Adam through Satan seeking to elevate his throne above his God-appointed position and one-third of the angels ruling under him, following him in his rebellion. Well, here's the man created, uh, here's man created to replace him, and the progeny of man uh, uh, would uh, replace uh, his angels over time. The whole lot of them would have been, uh, uh, they wouldn't be created. That is, uh, I'm not saying that uh, Adam would replace Satan, and then over time uh, they would replace angels, etc. That's not the idea. It's kind of hard to really... Uh, uh, say how that would have worked because God knew that it wouldn't work in the beginning and you didn't have all those men to replace the angels. It would have taken many, many, many years for a human race to develop in that respect. Uh, so let's not even get off on a rabbit trail like that. But let's just say that man was created to replace the angels and, of course, Satan saw this, knew this, God doesn't uh, operate in a corner. He made this fully known. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let him have the dominion which this angel has because the angel has disqualified himself. Now, Satan, in order to stop this, he has to bring about the man's fall, which he does through the woman. Then you're left with a redemptive process which Adam would have seen when he sinned, when he partook of the fruit, in order to bring man back into the position for which he was created. Now, I never really got to the outer wear, I don't believe. I've been talking about the inner wear, the glory of God that man lost. But man has to be clothed in the glory of God, the inner wear, in order to wear that outer, which is regal garments. You see, the regal garments over the glory. That's the way it was established 
in Genesis, and that's the way it will be finally realized out ahead, as seen in the book of Revelation. Man will be fully clothed, he'll be crowned, and he will occupy the regal position for which he was brought into existence. Now, there's one other thing I want to cover in uh, chapter uh, 3 before we move into 4. And I... Let me look at the verses here. Yeah, it's verse 8. We've, we're almost there. In fact, we are there. Take a look at three eight, chapter 3, verse 8. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord God called uh, to Adam, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now notice that word cool. What do you suppose that might be in the Hebrew text? Unless you've seen something on it, you would, uh, I don't think you'd ever figure it out. How they ever trans, oh, well I know why they translated it cool and I'll tell you in just a minute. Uh, most trans, uh, I just checked a few translations uh, and I believe they all use cool. Because they were all misled, that's why they use cool. Now, that word is ruach. Same word uh, in Genesis uh, 1-2. The spirit, the ruah of God moved across. It's the same word in Genesis 8-1. The ruah moved across. It's translated wind there. What do you suppose is happening here? Or why did they translate it cool? Well, they wanted to translate ruah as wind as they did in Genesis 8. And they say that uh, the... Uh, it would be in the later part of the day that you would have wind, and it would be in the cooler part of the day, so they just translated it cool. Well, why don't we, why don't we understand it more in the sense of what ruah really means? It means spirit. It has to do with God's breath. And here Adam hears God through his spirit by means of his breath. There could have been a light wind, but it would have been the breath of God moving through the garden. And that word voice could uh, be understood as just simply moving rather than hearing a voice. He heard a movement through. Now that word is translated voice more so uh, than not. In fact, it's, tra it's really, uh, well, I shouldn't say it's translated voice. It's really, it really means a voice more so than anything else. And perhaps we should leave it alone in the sense of a voice, but the idea is God just moving through the garden by means of his spirit or his breath, and Adam hearing this. Now, let's, uh, that's the one other thing I wanted to bring out in this chapter. Let's move right on over to the end of the chapter. And because uh, Adam, and, uh, Adam had eaten of this fruit, of which, of course, he had no choice other than to do, uh, God, uh, you, the fall, uh, Adam, uh, this resulted in the fall, and God then cursed the ground. Uh, the, the earth is again under a curse. Not only must man be redeemed, but the earth must be redeemed out from under this present bondage of sin, so to speak. But you get on over right at the end of the chapter. I'll show you one other thing before we uh, get into chapter 4. In verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden. Now why was Adam expelled from the Garden? 
Let's read about it. Gives a reason. To till the ground from whence he was taken, he drove out the man he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden, cherubims, and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, I read that text exactly like it is in the uh, version I'm reading. And uh, I want to call your attention to something. I probably should let it go, but I'll do it anyway. Um, he drove the man, first of all, he drove the man from the garden to prevent his eating of the tree of life. Well, why do that? What would eating of the tree of life now uh, involve? Or why, would, uh, why bother? Now, notice the way it's, this is worded in here. He drove out the man, placed at the east of the garden, a flame, let's see, it was to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, uh, it's back, okay, it's back in verse 22. I kept looking for this statement. I should have read verse 22. Verse, uh, let's read all of verse 22. At, uh, and the Lord God said, Behold, a man is become as one of us to know good and evil. Now, lest he put forth his hand also, take of the tree of life, and eat and live forever. Would, uh, would the tree of life provided uh, longevity of life for man in a physical sense? No, it couldn't have. Because that was not the original purpose for the tree of life, and a tree has to bring forth, according to the first chapter of Genesis, after its kind. Now bear something in mind, there's more than one type of life out there. There's physical life that we have now, there's life for the coming age, what was the purpose of the tree of life? The purpose for the tree of life was not to provide longevity of life in a physical sense for Adam and Eve. Think about saying that for just a moment if uh, that's what people, uh, someone believes about the tree of life, to provide uh, uh, perpetuity. I was messing up on that word. Let's just say longevity. Let's see a uh, continue to keep the person alive indefinitely in a physical sense. Well, here's Adam and Eve in an unfallen state, and the tree of life is available to them. Existing in an unfallen state, they're also existing in an undying state. Why would they need the tree of life to provide uh, perpetuity of uh, life? They wouldn't. The tree of life wasn't for that purpose at all, and... A tree must bring forth after its kind. After the fall, it wouldn't have provided that either. But what would it have provided had they been allowed to, uh, to eat of it? It would have provided wisdom and knowledge to rule and reign, and now they were not in a position to rule and reign. Therefore, God placed cherubim at the east of the garden. How many, uh, how many cherubim? These are angels. It doesn't say don't believe it does, does it? I need to read the text again. Placed at the east of the garden. Uh, uh, if you have a King James, look at that word. It's an interesting word, the way the translators have handled it. Placed at the east of garden cherubims. The uh, singular on angel, on cherub, uh, uh, it's cherub. The singular is cherub, the plural is cherubim. If you add an S to cherubim, it makes it a double plural. Uh, if you have a new NASB, NIV, uh, some other, they've uh, cor uh, corrected that. But uh, it's, uh, it's all right. 
Uh, it took me, I, I read right over it uh, a number of years, I guess, and just saw it the other day and thought, man, what have they done here? You see, uh, here's the thing about the Hebrew text. If you add an I-M on the end of the word, it pluralizes the word. For example, uh, God, the word God is uh, E-L in the singular, but it's E-L-O-H-I-M in the plural, you see, Elohim. El in the singular, or L, either way you want to pronounce it. El and Elohim. El is singular, Elohim is plural. We don't say Elohims. You see, it's already plural. Uh, that's like a, a pluralizing an English word with another S. But it's uh, something that, uh, I don't know, it's all right. You probably read over it and didn't even see it. So now you can uh, see it sometime when you read over it, but still you know what it is. So it's a little bit like my Greek teacher uh, at uh, Bob Jones told us one time. Uh, he said, you know what they mean, forget it. So you know what they mean. Now let's go on to chapter 4. Adam knew his wife, uh, she conceived, bare Cain, said, I've gotten a man from the Lord. And again, she bare his brother Abel, the keeper of the sheep, Cain, a tiller of the soil. In the process of time, it came to pass, Cain brought of the fruit of the, of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect, and Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. Why was uh, one son's offering rejected, the other son's offering accepted? Was uh, Cain's offering rejected because he didn't bring a blood offering? Was Abel's offering accepted because he did bring a blood offering? Well, if you turn to the book of Hebrews, let's look at something in Hebrews. Hebrews 11. That brings it out a little uh, clearer there in the sense that uh, I want to uh, present here. Just hold your place in Genesis. We'll be back there in a minute, or you can find it real easy if you want to drop your place. In uh, Hebrews 11:4, by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he being dead yet speaketh. Now if you put this within context, and the context has to do with the saving of the soul coming out of the previous chapter, and really each of the uh, statements that start out by faith, it should be understood that it's by faith to the saving of the soul. Those, though those words are not in there. Contextually, it should be understood that way coming out of the previous chapter. So let's understand it that way. By faith, Abel, relating to the salvation of the soul, offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. So we've moved beyond the blood sacrifice in the sense of our eternal salvation. Now, in the offerings, let me, uh, let me get a little, little, little bit ahead of myself and point something out. Relative to a blood offering within what we're looking at in Genesis 4, you need to go to another part of the type, and that is Cain rising up against his brother and slaying his brother, and the blood of Abel crying out from the ground, but the blood of Christ speaking better things than that of Abel. 
So we'll get to that in just a moment. I'm not throwing a, a blood sacrifice out. I'm just trying to point something out about Genesis 4 and uh, Cain and Abel's offerings. Now the Hebrew word that's used here for offering can mean a blood sacrifice, but it can also mean non-bloody sacrifices. There's another word that's uh, usually used when blood sacrifices are in view. And what we evidently have here would be offerings of the first fruits. Notice that Cain brought of the firstlings of his flock. Did I say Cain? Abel brought of the firstlings of his flock. Well, did Cain, who was a tiller of the ground, did he bring of the same type offering from the fruit of the ground? He was expected, with this type offering, an offering of the first fruits, he would have been expected to bring of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, a keeper of the sheep, would have been expected to bring the same type offerings, firstlings from here, firstlings from here, so to speak, to offer unto the Lord. And they would have been expected to bring a certain amount. Now, how did they know all of this? Well, evidently, from the text, the Lord had made this known through either their parents or to them. They knew to do this. And one did, and the other didn't. And the one who didn't was rejected. He was rejected because he failed to bring the correct type offering. Now, where am I headed with all of this? I'm headed out in the antitype to the time Christ came and that which they brought forth and that which Christ brought forth in the antitype. You see, the antitype has to do with two different types of offerings. And the blood offering comes in where one brother rises up against the other and slays the other brother. And then that which God, uh, how God reacts to this and that which he does following this slaying. So let's look at it in that respect. Let's continue reading. We have a little bit of uh, time. It doesn't matter whether we did or didn't. I would take it anyway. In verse 6, And the Lord said unto Cain, I'll have you out of here. No, give me 15 minutes. I'll have you out. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth? Why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. If thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door, and unto thee shall be his desire, that is, sin's desire, and thou shalt rule over him. Now that is a strange verse in one respect, but that's the verse I want to home in on. It's a simple verse if you look at it within context. <clears throat> now in verse 6, Cain was wroth, and his countenance, that is, he looked down. He was looking down. He was, I mean, he was angry. Instead of looking up, instead of bringing the correct offering and looking up, looking down instead. Now, the Lord tells him, if thou doest well, that is, if you do the right thing, bring the correct offering, shalt thou not, you'll be accepted. But if you don't do this, sin lieth at the door. Now, not a, there's not a sin offering at the door. That's what your commentators will tell you. In fact, I, that's what my footnote in the Schofield Reference Bible I'm using tells me. That's not the picture at all. 
Sin, like a wild beast, is crouching at the door, and it's going to eat you alive. That's a, that's a picture from a literal, a more literal thought from uh, the Hebrew rendering of this. It's it's just like a wild beast at the door. It's going to eat you alive. That's what's going to happen. Now, and unto thee, unto you, sin is going to desire you. Again, it's just going to eat you up. Now, the rest of that verse. Translate that and as but. You can translate it either way. It's really a, a, a more of a, it's, it's a conjunct, disjunctive conjunction, you might say here. But you're going to rule over him. In the end, you're going to triumph over sin. That's what's involved. Let me move it out in the antitype. You can see it real easy. Here's Israel when Christ came the first time. They were uh, compared uh, to uh, the fig tree without uh, uh, fruit. Just nothing but leaves. See, that's why it goes back to the Garden of Eden, trying to replace the glory with fig leaves. And um, also, they tried to replace something they had lost, and that is a covering of glory. Israel lost that covering of glory at the time of the Babylonian captivity. The glory departed the temple, went out to the east, the Mount of Olives ascended. And that's where it's going to come back, out in at the beginning of the Messianic era, when all of this is rectified. When Christ came with Israel in that condition, Israel was exactly like Cain. Brought the, was bringing the wrong uh, offering, uh, trying to offer unto God nothing but fig leaves. Not bringing the correct to the offering which God required. And here's not just an individual bringing lambs for an offering. He was the lamb. And as Cain rose up against his brother and slew him, Israel rose up against her brother and killed him. And just as in the type, the blood of Abel cries out unto the Lord from the ground, the blood of Christ in the antitype speaks better things than that of Abel. But you know what? This same verse tells you that somewhere out ahead, all of this is going to be rectified. Look at right at the end of the verse. But you are going to rule over him. In the end, you'll be brought back into the position that you should have occupied in the first place. Now, let's continue reading a little bit and see what happened to Cain. In verse 8, uh, well, here's where he slew Cain. Let's just read about it. Uh, that is, uh, slew Abel. Cain slew Abel. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. It came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. The field is a type of the world. That's in Matthew 13. It was in the field that Joseph was dealt with by his brethren in the type in Genesis 37. Cast him into pits, sell him to the Ishmaelites. They rose up against uh, their brother out in the antitype, just exactly as in the type slew him. Now, verse 9. The Lord said unto Cain, where is Abel thy brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What have you done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, 
which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond thou shalt be in the earth. Just think of Israel when I'm reading these verses. Israel has been driven out from the face of the Lord out among the Gentile nations. A fugitive and a vagabond, the idea between these uh, Placing these two words together, just a wanderer from place to place without a home. Verse 13, And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Think of Israel out there among the nations today, and that which is about to happen to Israel during the coming tribulation, during the last seven years of the previous dispensation. Behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth. From thy face I'll be hid. I'll be a fugitive, a vagabond in the earth. It shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. The Jewish people have been marked. The Lord has promised he will preserve the Jewish people. If you can blot out the sun, the moon, the stars, if you can cease the trough between the waves, things that man is just things that it would be impossible, of course, for man to do, then the Lord will forsake Israel and cast them off. But as long as it, that can't be done, the Lord is going to preserve Israel exactly like he told Cain that he would preserve him and anyone seeking to kill him, anyone seeking to do away with Cain, the Lord is going to take sevenfold vengeance upon that person or those persons. Seven, a complete number, com the complete judgment of the Lord would fall upon any individual seeking to do that to Cain out in the antitype, until Israel is restored back to the land, anyone attempting to do away, harm the nation of Israel, the Lord is going to take sevenfold vengeance upon that person, that nation. In short, you might want to send a note to Iran. You might want to send a note to a few other people, nations. In fact, there's a lot of people around this country you might want to let know about what the Lord will do, is about to do, if they persist, keep on persisting in exactly what is being done. By way of summation, let me say this. Don't get all concerned. Don't lose any sleep over what is happening. Go home, get a good night's rest because the Lord is in control. He's going to work it all out in his time, and it's all going to come out right. Not to worry. Let's pray. Our Father, we just ask that you might take your word to bear it home to the hearts of individuals. It's in Christ's name. Amen.